chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Sometimes a movie is ridiculous, but you love it despite its flaws. Sometimes a movie is ridiculous, but in a way that's really intelligent and shockingly moving and poignant. Sometimes a movie is so fucking dumb that the only way you can get over watching it is to complain with a friend for an hour. And that's what's going to happen today. Yikes, it's true. Um, That's not what I expected to happen with this movie. And yet here we are. I really, you know, I've always been a Drew Barrymore fan. I've always felt sort of a spiritual communion with her. And yeah, I I walked away with this movie having no warm and fuzzy feelings, which was not the way I felt about it when I first saw it as a kid. Yeah, I had the opposite of warm and fuzzy feelings. I wanted to shower. I felt gross. Um, You know that feeling when you're like walking down the street and someone drives by, a guy drives by and cat calls you in like a really gross way and you just want to turn around and go home and immediately like shower off the day. That's how I felt the whole movie. Yeah, that sounds about right. That, that does sound about right. I, I feel like a big part of it is that I have not watched this movie since I became an educator mm. and boy, nothing will fuck your world up like teaching young people and going back and watching some of these movies and seeing how they conceptualize Mm -hmm. what it actually means to be a 17 year old. Um, But we're going to get into that. I guess, uh, I guess we should get into it. Janelle, why don't you kick us off with a little summary of never been kissed? All right. If I must, Uh, here's your Google summary for never been kissed the year of our Lord, 1999. Josie Geller, played by Drew Barrymore, a baby-faced junior copywriter at the Chicago Sun-Times, must pose as a student at her former high school to research contemporary teenage culture. With the help of her brother, Rob, played by David Arquette, Josie infiltrates the inner circle of the most popular clique on campus, but she hits a major snag in her investigation, not to mention her own failed love life, when she falls for her dreamy English teacher, Sam Coulson, played by Michael Vartan. That's what Google says this movie is about. But what has Never Been Kissed really about? Look, Janelle, I spent the entire time I was watching this movie trying to come up with my answer to this question. Um, You know, I knew you were going to ask, and normally it's pretty easy for me to answer what a movie is about. I don't know with this movie because it is so all over the place that I'm not even sure what message they were trying to give. Because on a certain level... It's about, you know, feeling like a fish out of water and then discovering your place, except that I'm not really sure how it is that Drew Barrymore's character discovered her place or what place she discovered. So it's not about that, really. On a certain level, it's about high school cliques and, you know, the popular kids needing to be taken down a peg, except that that storyline is like really sidelined. And in the end, everyone just seems to be getting along, but not in a mean girl's way where you understand how they got there. So it's not really about that. I thought maybe it was about, you know men being interested in women who are infantilized, which is why like this teacher falls for this student, except that they don't really get into that. And you also have Drew Barrymore's character, who's supposed to be an adult, kind of falling for a 17 year old boy. So like, it's not as clear cut on the gender politics. I don't know what this movie is about. Yes, I think that this is a screenplay that falls prey to having too many ideas 
at once. Mm-hmm. The concept itself as a plot, right, is, is pretty straightforward. Woman, adult woman goes undercover in high school. Fine. That's a simple enough plot. Hijinks will ensue. But I think the problem is that it tries to pursue too many thematic threads. Yeah. The one that I think is the most successful and that they should have pursued more deeply is this idea that, well, there is this sense that our high school experience, whether or not we actually believe this, this is a kind of popular cultural belief, right? Your high school experience is something that defines you as an adult. There are traumas that happen in high school that you are constantly reckoning with as an adult. I don't agree with that, but I know that it's a prevailing belief. The film kind of proposes that you need to go back literally to high school to heal those traumas in order to become the successful adult you want to be. That happens to Josie. That happens to her brother, Rob, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But then you're right. There are these other threads too about, you know, the geeks being the actual cool kids in school or the cool kids being vapid and caring about things that don't matter in the real world. And also this very troubling boundary of young adults and teenagers having romantic entanglements and they don't really fall together. Not to mention this idea they throw, oh my God, there's another one. I forgot about this. There's this whole like very obvious as you like it reference that they make throughout about how when we're in disguise, we can be the people we really are. All of these things, it's not that I have a problem with like a convoluted high school plot because all of these things are things I think other movies have done well, right? I mean, even just even just looking like at movies from 1999, you know, you've got the like the cool kids versus the popular kids thing happening in, you know, in She's All That or in Drive Me Crazy. You've, you know, there's there's other movies like you've got, you know, someone going undercover at high school in any version of 21 Jump Street you want to look at, right? Like these plot setups, I don't have a problem with. I just don't understand where they were supposed to go because if you're sending Josie back to high school and she still feels like she's a geek and a fish out of water and whatever, and she needs to learn confidence in herself, you would think either the skills that she has developed as an adult turn out to really help her navigate high school in a way that she wasn't able to do when she was a teen. And so then she realizes like, oh no, I got this. Or the perspective that she's gained helps her to understand she doesn't need to be one of the popular kids because, hey, the uh, the smart kids are having more fun the whole time, which is like really evident in this movie. But she never actually picks up on that, really. It just sort of is a thing that exists, you know, or she has to like go through an actual transformation where she becomes a cool person, like in her own perspective. But she doesn't really go through the transformation. Her brother just convinces the cool kids to hang out with her and then nothing about her changes. So why have this setup if you're not going to let your main character experience any kind of change or revelation through the machinations of the setup? Josie as a protagonist is probably one of the most disempowered female protagonists I've ever seen in a rom-com, which is pretty shocking because as you say, she only becomes popular because Rob intervenes. She fails initially at uh, being undercover, so she has to be helped by her male colleagues primarily, right? Mm -hmm. She is completely socially incompetent. And you're right, that sort of shifts. We see her in a more sensitive light, but really the only transformation she undergoes, and here is the problematic thing, is that she gets kissed in the end. She becomes a viable sexual object by the end of the movie, and that is the transformation full stop. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's so strange that the whole premise is this is not a viable sexual option. This is not a woman who is appealing to men. And then she goes back to high school and 
they decide because the movie dictates it that she's now appealing to men no change happens and in fact she and the teacher character sam i don't really know why they bond like it wouldn't be hard to write a story where because she is more mature and has a you know more adult outlook on life she makes comments and says things that draw him in and then he you know whatever but that doesn't really happen it kind of is like she gets his 80s references and then they fall in love you know there's no moment where you're like oh i totally understand why someone in this moment would suddenly feel drawn to this woman and then be like oh shit i can't feel drawn to this person they're obviously a teenager and that would be really fucked up like that doesn't even happen he just sort of is into her because he finds her attractive, which they make clear multiple times. He makes comments about her being pretty, about guys wanting her, um, even though, like, again, she hasn't changed in any way. And then in the end, she does the pretty pink dress and the curly hair and gets kissed. And I don't really know why. <laughs> yeah, it's very disturbing what happens with the teacher, Mr. Coulson. Ugh. Gag me. Um... They connect initially over her vocabulary, over her knowledge of Shakespeare, and as you like it, like you said, she gets the references. And as you know, no high schooler has ever gotten a Shakespeare reference before. You can't see me right now, but I'm staring directly into the mic like I'm Jim in the office. Um, Anyway... (laughs) Kill me. Um... But so by doing that, by having that set up and le- and having us have the dramatic irony that we know Josie is 25, Mr. Coulson doesn't. So what they are showing is Mr. Coulson falling in love, essentially, with a 17-year-old girl who just seems, quote unquote, wise beyond her years. The first thing he says to her is, are you sure you're really 17? Uh, and it's uh, not a joke. Uh, uh, Janelle, like, that he, moment? He's literally pulling on her the idea that you you are you are older than your age and therefore it is okay for me to be attracted to you. He says this in front of a full classroom. And besides the insanity of all she does is correctly answer his Shakespeare thematic question, which should not be enough to make you wonder whether or not someone was actually 17, but he says it like he's flirting, right? Like he's in front of this classroom. He's just met a new student and he goes, are you sure you're 17? And everyone just sits there. Like that's a normal thing for a 31 year old teacher to say to a student. And I wanted to claw my eyes out. Yeah. And it, and and if you think about, I was, I was thinking about this a lot while I was watching the movie, that if you forget that we know anything about Josie's background and you think about the way this plot progresses for Mr. Coulson as a character, He is introduced to a student who he has very inappropriate feelings for. He runs into her at at a club, at a bar, with his girlfriend. He introduces her to his girlfriend. He sees her at another event. He joins her because she is alone on a Ferris wheel. Tells her that by the time that she's his age, the boys will come running for her. That is an admission of guilt. But for Josie, and because we see the movie through Josie's eyes, we're supposed to see that as romantic. That is not romantic. Mm -hmm. And the moment at the prom where she reveals that she's been undercover this whole time writing a story, the reason why he is freaked out, it's not because she lied to him, folks. It's because she was about to write an expose about a 31-year-old teacher who was ready to have an affair with a 17-year-old student. 
Yeah, he's basically the biggest issue in their relationship is that she's attempting to catfish him by pretending to be a 17-year-old girl and get him to make a move. And which, and again, he says a bunch of creepy things, but doesn't actually make a move, I guess, technically. And then she also doesn't write the story. And then nothing happens. And we're supposed to understand that this is the big, like, dramatic problem in the relationship. When there's so many other options for what the big dramatic problem in their relationship is that the movie just doesn't care about. Yeah, like, she's not concerned at all that he was perfectly uh, okay with entertaining feelings for a 17-year-old girl. That doesn't bother her at all. It never even comes up. And he's not concerned at all that he actually knows nothing about this woman because she was undercover and everything that she said and did was theoretically part of this cover-up. He's like, no, I'm definitely in love with her. And this is part of also how Josie is so disempowered throughout. Like, constantly Josie is the butt of everyone's, like, uh, blame. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lily Sobieski's character, whose who's name I can't remember, the Queen of the Geeks, she gets mad at Josie for becoming friends with the popular girls, makes it her fault, is actually quite mean to her. Rob blames her for ruining his chances with a 16-year-old. Ugh. Let's yeah, take no. a break on that. <laughs> I mean, she and, and, and Mr. Coulson gets mad at her for writing the story on, on him instead of admitting that, yeah, it was probably embarrassing for him to think that there is footage of him on record flirting with a girl he thought was his student. Mm-hmm. that's again, not her that's fault not... that's your fault bud and look again there's a way to tell this story where yes it blurs the lines of what you know is and isn't an acceptable relationship but it's more interesting and more understandable you know if you have like an actual reason that she needs to go undercover and then because she genuinely is like more of an adult and has a more adult perspective on life and makes comments that don't seem like the thing a teenager would say. And he starts feeling drawn to that. And, you know, something he says something and then is like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just said that out loud to a student. Like, this is horrifying. How am I having this reaction to this woman? And he's really conflicted. And then when he finds out the truth, he's both like a little relieved because, oh, God, I thank God I wasn't having those thoughts for a student, but also like this explains it. And he's also mad at her for lying to him and, you know, whatever. That'd be great. But that's not what happens here. He just sort of accepts it the whole time. And so does she. Right. And that scene after the prom, what he confronts her about is just lying, right? You lied to me, which felt very... It's very reminiscent, actually, in a kind of creepy way of how authority figures groom children Mm. in life, which is often in the form of blaming them for being so attractive. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's what's particularly irresponsible about how um, the relationship between Josie and, and Sam is portrayed. Absolutely. No, everything about their relationship, even with our knowledge that she is in fact supposed to be a woman in her 20s, feels like it is predicated upon this teacher-student relationship, this adult-teenager relationship. Even their final, you know, big romantic gesture moment of him showing up at the ballpark, that whole scene is based on this idea that she is sexually inexperienced and that she is looking as an innocent woman to have a big romantic experience in front of everyone as her like moment of growth moment of maturity and he comes in as the like long-awaited knight in shining armor and sweeps her off her feet and kisses her and like welcomes her into adulthood i mean the whole thing is meant to be treated as if she is in fact a teenager and her nerves, her putting herself out there, it's all set up in 
you know, the sort of language that we understand teenage girls to be talked about, not women. Ugh, I know. And it's so it's so wrapped up, too, in, 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 a, in a horrible way with this rom-com trope of the successful smart woman who can't get love right, mm-hmm. who is a failure at love. And in this sense, it, it's so awful the way that they make her out to be it both simultaneously infantilized, but also a kind of spinster at the same time. Yeah. Well, and it's not even, you know, in so many versions of that that we've seen of that trope, she is the successful woman, the smart woman, but she's just not successful in love, right? Like she's, you know, a successful businesswoman, but unlucky in love. And she's not even that because we don't actually see her being successful in her career either. The only thing that she's smart or good at is correcting people's grammar. So, which is both just like an annoying trait to be a character's main personality trait. And also in the context of the movie is supposed to be this like nagging spinster aunt kind of a trait we don't get to see her be successful in journalism you know it's not even a uh, it's not even a how to lose a guy in 10 days kind of thing where you know she's working for a fluff piece magazine but she wants to be a you know true reporter but she's good at her job at the fluff pieces and in the end she writes something that really is kind of perfect for this sort of magazine to have Instead, we have this young woman who's supposed to be working for the Chicago Tribune and wants to be a reporter, and then they give her a very strange investigative journalism opportunity where they don't even know what she's investigating. They come up with a very strange thing for her to investigate, which is a catfish scam, basically. And then in the end, she writes a fluff piece about like herself. It's not a successful journalistic piece because it's an op-ed. And she, of course, gets blamed the entire time for how bad the piece is when it's not her fault. She didn't even decide to do it. It was assigned to her and she was given bad instructions. It's just so unfair. The whole thing is so weird. They keep being like, why haven't you found a better story about this random high school? They have no reason for having chosen this high school. There's nothing specific she's supposed to be investigating. They basically are just like, we want to know what teenagers are like, to which I'm like, talk to your own kids. Or if you're talking to a 24-year-old, have her talk to like a little sibling right like this is not the concept is like adults trying to find out what's going on in the minds of teenagers which just feels like you should talk to teenagers and also just isn't like an investigative journalism piece well and really thematically what the movie's trying to get at is this idea that and i want to talk to you about this because i think it's one of the false premises that makes the movie sort of unsuccessful looking back is the idea that if you had a chance to go back and redo high school, knowing what you know now, wouldn't mm-hmm. you? I, I don't know that I would. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, no, I don't think most people in their right mind would be like, yes, let me go relive high school again. But also, if that's the premise, then the idea should be, again, you take the knowledge that you have gained and the confidence you have gained as an adult to understand that like this shit doesn't matter and go back and, you know, be fine with it. Right. Like if she, if the popular kids insulted her and then she brushed it off and then that made her suddenly become a popular kid, I'd get that. (laughs) But instead she goes back to do high school again and nothing's changed. She's still like a nerdy dweeb who doesn't know how to dress herself or talk to people. Well, that's what makes me think that the movie is in a way about how we have to, again, another false premise, that we need to process 
the trauma that we had from high school in order to kind of get out of our rusted development as young adults. Because her brother does the same thing. He has a sort of process like that he peaked in high school. That's the trauma that he has to to process in order to become a fully fledged adult. But I don't agree with that either. Like it, I, I just, it's, it's a thing that happens a lot with these eighties uh, and nineties high school movies in particular that later high school movies would actually specifically speak back to, which is the idea that high school is this defining era of your life. Yeah. Like who you are now is who you're going to be, which there are so many studies and anecdotes that suggest that that is so far from the truth. But we like to hold on to that fantasy for some reason. I think it's because it's just such a, I don't know, I guess it's a very formative period in your life in some mm-hmm. way, but I don't think it's the most formative by any stretch. The other thing that I was noticing as I was watching this was just thinking about like, what was with the 90s obsession with the popular kids and with like yeah, taking no them idea. down a peg? Like we've seen so many of these movies from like the second half of the 90s that are so obsessed with the popular kids versus the unpopular kids. And even something like Mean Girls, which is, you know, just a few years later, really, it's about the different cliques and the way they interact in a way that I actually find to be more realistic than just this, like, you know, she's all that version of, like, there's the cool kids who everyone wants to be like, and there's the nerds who no one wants to be like. And that is how high school works. And the 90s were obsessed with this dichotomy. Two things about that. First of all, Lily Sobieski is so gorgeous. And it is hilarious <laughs> watching this movie if you went to high school, I think, when we did in the late aughts. Because she would have been worshipped as queen of the awkward <laughs> hipster girls. She would have been Zooey Deschanel times 10. Every person in school would have wanted to be her. So miss me with that. Um, second of all... My theory is that I think because the counterculture in the 90s, especially in the early 90s, was kind of this like punk rock, grungy um, sort of Mm -hmm. resistance to the norm. There was this very strong, very popular sort of cultural paradigm that things that were poppy and bright and colorful and quote unquote mainstream, you know, there was, it was really the first time I think that the, the, I mean, this is kind of ironic, right? That the mainstream culture started to bifurcate and the counterculture Mm -hmm. became part of the mainstream culture in a really clear way. So it was, it was this constant tension between yes, be the fluffy bubblegum Jessica Alba popular girl, but also be able to see her, as oppositional to the real cool kids, right? So we have two versions of cool, right? Popular cool and counterculture cool. No, I definitely see what you're saying. But given that, now all I'm thinking about is how disappointing it is that if that's like the big cultural dichotomy that's happening, and then you give us a young Drew Barrymore, who's supposed to be a not popular kid, and you just make her this like, preppy, quiet dweeb. Like, if anyone's going to be able to fill in this counterculture punk rock type model. Right. Is it not a 20-year-old Drew Barrymore who was like literally famous for that just a few years earlier? Well, and it's kind of worth talking about, I think, how this movie in a lot of ways was a pivot in her career because it was Mm -hmm. the first film that her production company, Flower Films, optioned. Uh, So it was the first movie she produced for herself. And it was a real turning point from her previous... um, image is this teen wild child, right? Like who Mm -hmm. went to rehab when she was 13 years old. 
So I, I, I wonder if that, that was, that was very intentional, you know, to really portray her as this like meek person, because I mean, I don't remember the time when she was a wild child. I, I, but Mm -hmm. I know her as the meek, you know, gawky sort of quirky girl. Well, and she did go through this period leading up to this, where that was sort of the role she was trying to take on more. Certainly. I mean, you know, she did the wedding singer where she's definitely more of a meek character who's sort of stuck in a relationship that she can't get out of. Um, and she did very notably ever after where she's not a meek character by any means. She's quite a strong character in that, but definitely a, you know, it's a princess movie, right? Like she's more, you know, palatable for a wider audience, right? She's playing a pretty character and she's playing a kind character. And, you know, she's definitely trying to get away from that early nineties grunge teen problem child persona but the next movie that she did which was also um through her production company after never big kiss the next big one was charlie's angels where of the angels she was a badass does kind of go back to form right she is sort of the punk rock chick she's the one who's like sleeping around and kind of doesn't give a fuck and she's flipping everyone off and she's smoking and she's dressed in like cool girl clothes as opposed to just sexy girl clothes you know right like it clearly she wasn't trying to completely shed this persona that she was a badass but definitely she was playing around i think with different masks and seeing sort of which one fit her well and which one she wanted to move forward with and i do think that she going into the 2000s does more often than not take on this more delicate type persona you see it in music and lyrics you see it in 51st dates where she's quite literally delicate because she cannot take care of herself. Uh, You see that in He's Just Not That Into You, the very first movie we talked about, where she is so meek and pathetic. And I just feel like so often when she takes on that role, I'm disappointed in her and in her performance. And it's not that she's a bad actress, but it just like leaves so much to be desired when we know that she can give a performance that doesn't. And definitely this, the character of Josie and the character that Lily Sobieski plays, the kind of queen of the nerds girl, they are both really kind of playing a not like other girls role. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I, it's hard to say, like you're saying, where this, where this aggression towards popular kids is coming from. I want to do more thinking about that, but I will say that it definitely prefaces what's about to come, which is about 10 years of dragging the, the popular kids of American culture. That is the sort of starlets, the paparazzi darlings mm-hmm. through the mud. I mean, mm. truly running them down, humiliating them, people delighting in their downfall, right? Hashtag free I Britney. Watch, hashtag free Britney. I mean, I, I, re-watch, I watched the documentary about Britney Murphy's life last mm. night, and I was thinking about that a lot after having watched this, that, boy, there is something really mean-spirited in, in the culture that was mm-hmm. emerging through, through films like this that would only get worse 10 years later. Well, and it was so normalized. I mean, we definitely were all a part of that because it was just sort of thrown at your face every day. Like, here is the theoretically, like, the popular thing. The pop music, the popular clothes, the popular kids. And the coolest thing you could possibly do is just tear them down. Insult them, make fun of them. That sort of sarcasm, like, angry sarcasm really permeated for a long time coming out of this period. And you even see that, like, Lily Sobieski's character is actually quite cruel mm-hmm. at various points to the popular kids. And the popular kids are cruel back to her. But it's kind of shocking to see how aggressive she is. I mean, when Josie starts hanging out with the more popular girls, 
she passes her in the mall and says, oh God, look, another lemming. Yeah, it's a very catty moment and a very sort of stereotypical popular girl kind of catty. Yes. Which is fascinating. Um, And again, through all of that, there's not really any resolution to that tension in this movie. It's not like Mean Girls where it comes to a head and they like have it out. Like there's a moment where they're going to pull a prank on on, um, the non-popular girl at prom and Josie stops them. But then... By the next big scene with everyone, everyone's just on Josie's side and everyone's getting along. And it's it comes out of nowhere. There's no resolution. Not that there's much tension to begin with, but what is there like doesn't get resolved. It just sort of moves past it. So it just feels like someone was ticking off a list of high school tropes they were supposed to include. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's And what does Josie even give her after that? Right. She says, you know, this girl is magnificent. She was nice to me when none of you were, it's like, she, she was nice to you until you decided to hang out with other people and then was kind of like mean and manipulative. So is she really that magnificent? I don't know. And like the whole premise of, you know, this eighties and nineties obsessions with teens is that high school is really interesting. And this movie like disproves that. Well, exactly. And that's what's sort of weird about Josie's big speech at the prom where she says like, all of this, like, I don't care about any of this. I've had to work so hard to impress you people. And you're going to just find out that nothing matters. None of the things you care about now matter. And I just kept thinking like, what is this weird Pyrrhic victory she's getting here? Telling all these kids that the things that matter to them now are like unimportant. Like it's so petty and so weird. Well, And (laughs) everything we've seen in her adult life is people gossiping about who's sleeping with who, people fighting to try to work their way up the hierarchy ladder, people worried that they're not popular enough or cool enough to, like, make it. Like, we've seen nothing to support her claim that none of this is going to matter since all she cares about is the fact that she wasn't successful in high school. Well, exactly. And her brother Rob has the same story, right? It's, like, part of the reason why he is stuck in this job that he doesn't particularly care for is because he is trapped by his past as the baseball star of his high school and he can't move past that achievement to to the next thing you know Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah actually Josie I think high school does at least in this world matter quite a bit totally yeah again this goes back to I just don't know what they were trying to say with this movie um and not that every movie has to make a statement but just from a like script writing you know point of view like you should have a purpose one scene should create a situation that leads into the next scene i just feel like there's no cause and effect at any point in this film there's no consequences i don't understand anyone's motivation what's josie trying to accomplish nothing she's sent here against her will and then i don't know what she's trying to achieve once she's there but eliza she needs to get that life-changing kiss She's yeah. got to get that life-changing kiss. No, that I guess is you're the right. whole fucking thing. The only thing she achieves is a kiss. That is it. Um, and the stakes are so weird leading up to that that it doesn't feel like an achievement. It's very weird. And also like I don't even I didn't want them to kiss. I there didn't feel there was tension. There wasn't chemistry between the two of them because their scenes were so bland. Honest to god, I think that the characters with the most chemistry in this movie were Josie and her brother, which is also concerning. Yikes. <laughs> like, there's a scene where he's like, oh, you look so beautiful. And I was like, ew, ew, ew. A brother should not be saying that like that. Like, they had this. And then he, one of the ways he makes her popular is by telling everyone that they dated and she broke up with him. 
and implying that they're still hooking up. It's her brother. Yeah. Well, at least there's a kind of gross reaction to that at the prom. So at least they lampshade that just a little bit, but not <laughs> nearly enough. Not nearly this enough. This movie does not understand what an ick factor is. And I really think someone should sit down all of the creatives in charge of this movie and explain ick factor. Yeah, this this movie's bad at boundaries. They need to they need to work on that. Never been kissed. This movie's bad at boundaries. <laughs> like that could have been on the poster. I also just, I don't know, just the whole idea, like, okay, again, we're going back to a concept problem. There is this high school idea, and then there is this never been kissed idea, right? Mm -hmm. If it was good writing, we're going back to screenwriting class, guys, the getting kissed part should be intimately related to the going undercover at the high school part. Yes. Now, what's terrible about this movie is that the way that they make those things intimately related is that... Josie was always meant to get her first kiss from a teacher that she never should have been kissing in the first place. So like, yeah, no, I don't like it. Don't like it. Yeah. If, if Molly Shannon's character, AKA the like friend at work were played by a woman who was younger because Molly Shannon's in her thirties at this point. So if it was played by like another 24, 25 year old and they needed someone, one of the girls at work, women at work to go undercover as a teenage girl and someone suggested the Molly Shannon character and someone else was like, no one's going to believe she's a high schooler. We all know like she's so experienced. She's such an adult. She like has such an adult woman, like attitude towards the world. Like she's never going to be able to pull off the like sweet, innocent wallflower who needs to blend in in order to like get away with going undercover. And then someone else was like, well, how about Drew Barrymore? Because you know, she is much quieter and more demure and more innocent as we all kind of know. And I feel like she would blend in at high school better. Great. This is where we're going. Instead, what happens is a crazy old man who decides he needs to send someone to high school, looks for the youngest person in the room and goes, you're going undercover. So it has nothing to do with the never been kissed concept. And it has nothing to do even really with her personality. It's just that she's 24. And this is where... I have to get a little bit serious because I was talking to a friend of mine recently about, and trust me, this is all related. Go with me on this. I was talking to a friend recently about that whole wild internet conspiracy theory that went around about how Wayfair was selling trafficked children on its website in the furniture that was named after missing girls, right? This is a ludicrous idea. This is an absolutely ludicrous theory. Why do people believe it? Why are people drawn to wanting to believe that it's true? Well, the hard truth is that a lot of our culture is a bit obsessed with sexualizing children. Why? Because it is taboo. Because we are not supposed to do it. And thereby, our our weird little lizard brains are always looking for opportunities to imagine sexualized children. And what bothers me about this movie is that I think it gives us an excuse to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Not only do we get to see Drew Barrymore, 24-year-old Drew Barrymore, act like a 17-year-old and be a sexually desirable body, but say she's a 17-year-old, we also get to see a 16-year-old character hit on David Arquette, right? And him entertain Mm -hmm. the idea of having sex with this 16-year-old character. So there is something kind of sinister, I think, about this setup beyond it not 
making a whole lot of sense. <laughs> oh, absolutely. We also get the sexualization of teenage boys as well. There absolutely. are multiple scenes where there's a 17-year-old boy in the class who Drew Barrymore's character seems to be crushing on and kind of actively dates over the course of the movie. And she continually, in her mind, flashes back to the guy in high school she had a crush on and conflates the two of them. And he's filmed in a very sexual way. He gets slow-mo entrances with, like, smooth jazz and wind going. I mean, we're supposed to understand not that she chooses him as the best option to pretend to date for her cover, but that she's genuinely attracted to the 17-year-old boy. And she never confronts that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's very disturbing, too, because it kind of aligns with what you hear sometimes from these women predators of young boys, right? They'll say that, like, oh, you know, it just reminded me of being young. It, it you mm-hmm. know, He reminded me of a guy that I knew before. You know, it's kind of a common trope uh, in those stories. It's very disturbing. Yeah. Well, and it's all made all the more complicated by the fact that this is a movie with actors and the actors' ages are all over the place. Uh, The actor, whose name is Jeremy Jordan, who plays this 17-year-old who Drew has a crush on, was in fact older than Drew Barrymore when filming this. So he's an adult. He's a man in his 20s, and then he's filmed in the sexualized way. And it wouldn't be unusual for someone who's attracted to men watching this movie to be like, yeah, I'm attracted to this guy. But we're supposed to understand that he's a child, and yet now we're seeing a theoretical teenager in the eyes and the visual, you know, language of an adult being treated like an adult by a fellow adult in Drew Barrymore. Um, And then, you know, we're supposed to understand that she is actually closer in age to the teacher than obviously he thinks he, she is. And so it's okay that they have a relationship. But meanwhile, Drew was 24 when they filmed this movie and Michael Barton was in his thirties, which isn't an insane age difference, but it is a 10 year age difference. And it is similar to the age difference we're supposed to understand is happening in this movie if we assume she's a teenager, right? Like, it fucks with your mind. Yeah, no, there's no way to explain this movie or discuss this movie or think about this movie that doesn't go squicky. Do we have any final thoughts? I feel like... (laughs) I Uh, I just, I just want to just, again, point out all of the just strangeness of the actual plot setup for this movie because in addition to just how gross the like main storyline is it just doesn't make sense about anything like she works for the chicago tribune and they want to do an investigative piece but they don't know about what they just think high school that's probably a good topic um (laughs) and then there's apparently some other local chicago paper that keeps scooping them on the high school story that high schoolers might be drinking at parties, I think is like the big scoop that they get. Um, the, there's also the strangeness that they keep conflating Drew with the eighties and the current teenagers with the nineties in this sort of like kids these days are so unfathomable kind of way, except that her character is supposed to be 25 and it's 1999. So she would have been in high school in the nineties. Yep. She would have graduated in 1992. Right. And yet they keep showing her in like a mid 80s prom dress and they play like early 80s music. You know, I think there's like a Cindy Lauper song from 82 playing at one point in one of her high school flashbacks. And like that song would have been very passe at that point because it would have been a decade later. And so this idea of like the 90s kids are so confusing to a like 
you know, out of touch 80s person doesn't make sense if you're using a young 20 something. Also having people dressed in like high 1999 fashion mocking 80s fashion just like does not hold water anymore because they look more ridiculous. (laughs) And then there's some weird side plot about the school tries to win best prom. Oh, Eliza, how did it take us this long to talk about the I, fact that this prom has an elaborate costume theme instead I'm of formal so dress? Confused by they apparently compete with other schools to win best prom, which isn't a thing and doesn't make sense, and also isn't a thing they follow through to the end because you never find out if they did win best prom. But in doing so, they therefore have to have a theme for prom every year. And so the theme they land on is like a costume party. And so no one's at prom in a prom dress. They're all into like Halloween costumes. But meanwhile, their original theme was Millennium. Which Which was the prom theme for every high school in America in 1999. But like, what is, if we're talking like true theme, the way they end up going where there's like costumes and shit, like what is Millennium as a theme? Um, I don't know. Let's ask every boy band who released an album that year. Like, this isn't the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. It doesn't even dictate how, like, the the decorations go. Like, it's just, it's so wild. And again, they just drop it. It's like a huge plot point twice, and then you never find out what happens with it. Or, like, who's determining best prom? Why is this a competition? What do they win? It, but Eliza. It's so weird. <laughs> They had to have the theme so that Drew Barrymore could dress up like Rosalind from As You Like It because it's so resonant thematically with her character, except that it isn't. (laughs) Except that it isn't. And I'm sorry, Janelle, no one knows As You Like It. No one understands the references, even if they were good. I know. I kept writing that down in my notes. Like, no one gets this. No one knows As You Like It. Why are you even making this reference? It's not even a smart reference. Get out of here. Here's my question for you, Janelle. What is your thought on the Shakespearean analysis in this movie that all the world's a stage and men and women merely players in it means everyone is always disguising themselves so they can be honest? Okay, the thing is, everyone always forgets that that speech goes on for quite a while. And it is also given by a clown. So it is meant to be amusing, you idiots. Anyway, so... (laughs) It's the idea that life is a performance, not that we are the most ourselves when we are in disguise. They talk about people, they have their entrances, they have their exits, right? That's the idea. It's not to say that, ah, right. God, we are I'm all sorry, I'm about to go parts. on such a rant. No, we are all playing parts does not mean we are all lying constantly. It just means that no. there are roles to fill and we fill them. Which is different than the analysis which is given by the world's worst English teacher in this movie, which is, as you all know, when you put on a football uniform, you're allowed to touch guys' butts. Yes, exactly. But that connects to a larger problem with rom-coms in general, I think, where they always, not always, but they often have this ideology that relationships built on deception are okay because we are always sort of trying to present a version of ourselves to the person that we're trying to make fall in love with us. But that's horrible advice for love. That's horrible advice. You should be your authentic self so that someone can love the authentic you, not deceive them. We also need to move past starting every rom-com with a woman who looks frumpy. Stop it. Stop using the word frumpy, people, ever. No more. Stop that. Drew Barrymore is gorgeous. I hate you. I did like that instead of making Drew Barrymore a crazy cat lady, she was a crazy turtle lady. Kill me. 
Cat ladies crochet blankets, but turtle ladies crochet pillows. Someone put me out of my misery, please. This is the time in the show every week where we stop to take a break, thank our patrons on Patreon, and especially our romantic leads who are Bob, Esther, Ian, Trey, and Melissa. I'm trying to think of a quip. This movie's so bad, there's no good quip to make This movie is so bad, there is no quip. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, there's no quip. Sorry, that's it. There's no quip, we really love you guys. That's it. Um, You can be the Molly Shannon to our Drew Barrymore. That's it. (laughs) If you would like to be yet another Molly Shannon to our Drew Barrymore... You can go to patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. You can also buy our merch at romcomkilljoys.threadless.com. Obviously, listen to us all the time on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Dear God, Eliza, I need a stiff drink. (laughs) And since you can't give me a stiff drink over the internet, uh, what's your antidote this week? All right, so I've got two. Um, and I'm trying to recommend something else from 1999 for each week of our 1999 month. And so if you would like to watch another film from 1999 that also takes place in high school and also deals with some maybe um, uncomfortable crossing of boundaries when it comes to relationships, but does so in a much more interesting way, go watch Cruel Intentions. That is a movie that is about very much crossing the line when it comes to relationships and consent and all of those sorts of things but it acknowledges the problems and it's about the problems and the characters are more interesting and the depiction of high school is intentional in the things it's doing and uh it's a really great script and it's a really great movie and uh you should go watch that other than that my suggestion i was thinking about our darling drew who i do love so very much and i was thinking about better things she is in better things she produced and things that would be great to watch in this the month of october so everyone go watch the netflix television show santa clarita diet yay santa clarita diet features drew barrymore as a um suburban housewife who accidentally becomes a zombie and then she and her husband and their teenage daughter have to figure out how to deal with her being a zombie and needing to kill people and eat their flesh while managing to have none of the neighbors ask any questions. It is so funny and so smart, and I'm so sad that it didn't get renewed for another season. There are three, I believe. They're all short, so it's a very quick watch, but it's so much fun. It's very, very funny. She's excellent in it. Go watch Santa Clarita Diet and enjoy your Halloween. What uh, what have you got for us this week? Please, please give me some ideas. Well, well, uh, I really got stuck on the inappropriate relationship between uh, Mr. Coulson and Josie, and it really got me thinking um, about, first I want to say it got me thinking about this constant problem that teen movies have with sexualization and the sticky situations that both shows and movies get into with the sexualization of teenagers, how to acknowledge that teenagers are sexual beings without... um, kind of stoking the flames already of a society that has uh, a lot of pedophilic undertones. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I want to recommend a really good cultural criticism video essay on this topic by one of my favorite YouTubers, Mina Lee. It's called The Problem with Teen Dramas. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's basically all about um, how teen shows are often predicated, especially since the first iteration of the show Gossip Girl, on how sexy teens are. Mm. Which from a PR standpoint makes sense, 
but from an ethical art <laughs> and storytelling standpoint, does not make a lot of sense. And she really explicates that quite well in this video and in an entertaining way. Um, but my real big antidote this week is that I was thinking about a narrative that that does the the same thing that Never Been Kissed wants to do, but does it so much better and and really addresses all the nuances and complexities of a relationship like that, the complexities of lying to the people around you. And of course, I immediately thought of Lin-Manuel Miranda's adaptation of the This American Life Story 21 Jump, Chump Street. 21 <laughs> Chump Street, which is very difficult to say 10 times fast. Um, it's a story about an undercover narcotics officer who goes to a high school in Florida and a boy who has straight A's uh, completely falls for her. Uh, and she may or may not have used his crush as a way to convince him to um, procure drugs for her and thereby getting him expelled from school. So it's uh, the musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote uh, based on this. It's 14 minutes long. It's all on YouTube. It's just delightful. Even if you hate Lin-Manuel Miranda's music, it's 14 minutes. It's beautifully written and it's heartbreaking. <laughs> and Anthony Ramos is just so charming in it. So go check that out. That's Mina Lee's video, The Problem with Teen Dramas, and Lin-Manuel Miranda's one-act musical, 21 Chump Street. Well, Janelle, I think that we're both going to be glad to put this movie behind us. Sure will. And I would like to leave you with the parting words that my favorite moment of this movie was when a character with almost no lines, played by, believe it or not, James Franco, got hit in the head with a purse. <laughs> That's what I need. If somebody wants to come along and give me a little bit of brain bleach and then hit me in the head with a purse, I'd be much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time. Start from kissing and making up.